Welcome to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the foundations of science, faith, and philosophy. In the first four sections, we explored the empty places in life and in the grand enterprise of mathematical and empirical reductionism. People we cherish, like my father, die. Our best laid plans turn to ashes, or in the words of the Scottish poet Robert Burns, gang aft aglay, which means often go awry. Logic proves itself to be incomplete. Foundational mathematical questions are undecidable. The laws of quantum and classical physics are incompatible. Time and space are incomprehensible. Religion and science remain locked in their noma closets. Reality and life is emptied out. Vastation is the word. I was once stranded with my son, aged four, on the side of the road late on a Friday afternoon in rural New Hampshire. The car had died, I had no cash, poor planning, and I had no good rescue options as my wife had taken the baby off to her mother's house several hours away. My son and I were supposed to head up to our just purchased home, an antique in much need of repair, to camp out for the weekend. We walked to a small diner a half mile from the car where I called on the phone, this was in the pre-mobile days, and found a very helpful attendant at a motel a few miles away who got us a room, set up a taxi, and agreed to front me some cash on my credit card. During this escapade, I said to my son several times, no, this is a real pickle. We are in a pickle for sure. Years later, he reported to me that as we were driven towards the motel, he had expected to see a giant pickle on the side of the road where we were going to spend the night. We can imagine, I suppose, the vastation of life and knowledge under reductionism as a, as a cosmic pickle, seasoned with salt, vinegar, garlic, and dill. Surprising, but not so unpleasant once you get used to the flavor. Better than onions, perhaps, or lemons, but life and the world are more than any of these. In the vastation of my separation and divorce, I invested myself in my responsibilities as father and provider, and I re-engaged with the church as a source of community and religious education for my kids. As the old way closed, new ways opened up. Coincidentally, it seemed, an old college acquaintance also looked me up. We had known each other years before, and our families had shared Christmas cards. Wenda was her name. She had seen my, uh, quote, sorry, this is late, but card the previous February. Being on the path to divorce herself, she thought to call me many months later when she had an extra ticket to a concert, as she knew I had been a musician. Although I declined the invitation due to parental obligations, I called her back a week later and we became friends. Wenda introduced me to the theology of Emanuel Swedenborg. The first book she gave me was Marriage Love, which delighted me. I found late 20th century psychology buried in a very complex and sophisticated 18th century theological treatise. 
As we explored our life experiences and aspirations by phone, Wenda and I became close friends. In time, we fell in love. As some of you may recall, falling in love can be an indescribable and transformative experience. In our case, it was deeply so, in part because we were each being reintegrated on multiple levels. At the emotional level, I found a shared love that healed old wounds. I felt myself drawn to a psychological depth and wellness I had never known. At the cognitive level, we shared insights that helped me to see possibilities for an integration of the many parts of the world and life into a unified whole, a vision that had originally driven my intellectual curiosity. At the spiritual level, we exchanged ideas and books. I was opening to a new faith, one that integrated my life into a coherent framework that embraced all life in the service of creation. These transitions served as the vase for a flowering of the natural, physical attraction and shared joys of a healthy, loving relationship. We were married in 1993. Wenda and I have often talked about life as a spiral of experience. There are times when we have to confront issues or experience pain, or we are given access to psychological and spiritual insights. If we are open to and embrace these opportunities, we learn and grow. Quite often, they slip away. How often do the voices in your head tell you, why did I do that if I had only said, or, oh, I should have? Many times we miss the lesson entirely or don't even know that it was there. We ignore it or deny it. What we have found is that whatever opportunity for personal growth was missed eventually comes around again, especially the painful ones. By then, hopefully, we're in a different space, having learned something since the last episode. When it comes around this time, we are able to make use of the lesson in a positive way. Life moves in a spiral. Swedenborg offers a helpful teaching on this topic. When an individual dies, their spirit awakens in what he calls the world of spirits. Neither heaven nor hell, the world of spirits is a place where appearances are removed and our internal intentions, our true loves, are made clear. There are many opportunities for instruction. If spiritual issues were left unresolved during your natural life, you will need to deal with them here. Were you cruel to someone and never made amends? Were you thoughtless and self-centered? Did someone hurt you and you never let go to embrace forgiveness? What did you fail to understand? While some may find comfort knowing that you will have another chance in the other life, we find it more of an incentive to address the issue at hand. Better to deal with it now in this life than drag it with you all the way to the next. There is another incentive in Swedenborg's theology encouraging careful self-reflection. If you hold on to something dearly, it is a sign that you are choosing to love that above other things. For example, do we hold fast to resentments and blame, or do we seek forgiveness and compassion? In the passage through the world of spirits, your understanding is opened to the choices you have made, 
and you give full expression to your primary ruling love to be embraced for eternity. When you leave the world of spirits, you join a spiritual community that shares your ruling love. This may be in heaven or in hell, depending upon the nature of what you have chosen to love. Best choose wisely in this life. Section 6. What is meant to be? It's a simple question. What is the meaning of life? Just as there are two sides to every coin, there seem to be two sides to this question. I wrote in Section 5 of a chance encounter years ago and the subsequent sequence of improbabilities that led me into the most important relationship of my life. The entire process seemed fortuitous and random. Yet the braided connections that Wenda and I formed and the series of choices we each made through the process created a beautiful tapestry. We were drawn to each other, our lives weaving together across space and time. We gave purpose to each other. Our loving relationship was meant to be. The term random walk refers to the behavior of an individual, be it a molecule, a cell, an organism, an animal, a human, or a stock market investor, moving through an environment in a series of steps that fits the mathematical definition of being random. Each next step or choice is independent of the previous one, almost as if the individual was flipping a coin or using some other independent series to make a decision about taking the next step. This behavior is often observed in physical and biological processes, which lends credence to the presumption that the world is fundamentally random. Yet, a random walk is also an efficient exploratory procedure for moving and surviving in an unknown environment. The random walk is an important tool for efficient, purposeful behavior. When we observe a random walk, are we observing something random or something purposeful? According to modern cosmology, the universe unfolded in a series of transitions from a primordial state at or near the Big Bang. The appearance of the Higgs field, which conveys mass, is one of the early transition points, along with the emergence of the other fundamental physical forces. Once this cascade was complete, the universe of standard particle physics as we know it today was in place. Remarkably, the equations describing the laws that apply to this universe include a variety of very precise constants that delineate the specific strength and configuration of forces and particles. Many of these constants are related, but 19 of them or so have the specific characteristic of being dimensionless. They serve as ratios for measured quantities, but are not measurements themselves. Physicists agree there is no explanation for why these fine-tuning constants are what they are. Had any of the values been different, even by tiny amounts, the universe would be radically different or would not exist at all. Everything that follows is dependent on these constants. With physics and its constellation of forces, particles, and fine-tuning constants in place, the universe continued its evolutionary process. Atoms formed, 
with proton-neutron nuclei and clouds of electrons in precise energy states, all behaving in obedience to the laws of physics. Stars began to burn, galaxies coalesced, and planetary objects appeared. The stars created new, heavier atoms, slowly filling out the periodic table of the elements. Various elements combined to form more complex chemical compounds that spread throughout the universe. On at least one planet, Earth, some of those chemicals, based on their precise characteristics, reacted with others, creating a complex soup of chemical substances. Increasingly complex behaviors appeared, including self-replication, autocatalysis, and metabolic processing. One of the complex chemicals that appeared was ribonucleic acid, RNA, and subsequent variants including deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. From physics, chemistry emerged. From chemistry, biology emerged. More complex colonies of reproducing units began to grow. Cell structure developed and cooperative symbiotic relationships arose. Single-celled organisms appeared and evolved in time to multicellular and increasingly complex forms, both nonvertebrate and then vertebrate. Eventually, mammals and primates appeared, accompanied by more complex forms of intelligent and empathic behaviors and social structures. Consciousness developed and enabled increasing reflective and self-reflective capacities, such as tool-making, language, and morality. Human species evolved, and one, Homo sapiens, came to dominate the Earth. From biology, humanity emerged. From life, intelligent, conscious, moral humans emerged. From human behaviors, culture, science, and global civilization emerged. When we contemplate this cascade of remarkably and highly improbable transitions and the laws of nature that they follow, are we observing something random or something purposeful? The second law of thermodynamics requires that any closed physical system always and inevitably progresses towards states of increasing homogeneity or sameness release gas into a closed box, and it will eventually fill the box in an even distribution. The technical measure for this homogeneity is entropy, and the second law states that entropy always increases. A block of ice melts and becomes a puddle of water. An egg falls and breaks and cannot be reassembled. The structure and morphology of the starting points of ice or egg have been lost. The end states of water and broken egg are all mixed up. Entropy has increased. Remarkably, all of the interesting structures that come into being as the universe evolves seem to violate the second law. If the universe is running down by transitioning from the low entropy conditions of the Big Bang to states of increasing homogeneity and higher entropy, then where do the remarkable cosmological features of stars and galaxies the complex phenomena of chemistry and biology, and the capacity for human consciousness and imagination come from. These phenomena all reflect an increase in order, structure, and variety, quite at odds with the second law's imperative for homogeneity from increasing entropy.
The simple answer is that local structure and order emerges from by exporting entropy to the larger environment. The entire universe as a whole continues to run down towards some icy and inevitable death. But as it does, local pockets of increasing organization and structure emerge. This counter-entropic process is explained in the theory of nonlinear dynamic systems pioneered by Ilya Prigion and others. When energy is in flux, stable structures tend to emerge in the otherwise chaotic flow by dissipating energy. For example, when we open the drain at the bottom of a sink, the water molecules rush for the drain, bouncing and jostling in a disorganized and turbulent chaos. Then we see a whirlpool, a stable and orderly structure emerge. The molecules become more organized and dissipate the energy caused by the pull of gravity as friction to the sink and the drain. The flowing water seeks out a stable structure that maximizes the efficient local dissipation of energy. All of the structures we see and study in the universe are the result of dynamic systems that exhibit this behavior. Snowflakes form in the dynamic chaos of moisture-laden clouds and complex, beautiful, and fragile crystalline forms of nearly infinite variety emerge. Turbulence in water results in swirling eddies, dancing waves, and shimmering surfaces, all evidence of order and structure emerging from chaotic dynamic processes. The flocking of birds in a configuration known as a murmuration creates a dancing, spiraling pattern. The birds themselves follow simple, instinctive flight rules, but a form of intelligence and remarkable sophistication emerges from their simple behaviors. The same emergent process appears in every bee and ant colony. Even the simple living structure of a sunflower produces a beautifully ordered and structured pattern in its seed head. In minimizing the energy used in growing the flower and seeds, the plant follows the simple rules of the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio, resulting in a structure with multiple interlocking spirals spinning both left and right. When we consider these rather miraculous-seeming violations of physical law and the emergence of order and complexity, do we conclude that we are observing something random or something purposeful? Aristotle's original theory of causation contained four different types of cause. In any process, there is the material cause, substance or composition, and the formal cause, the form or shape, both of which can be said to constrain the possible outcomes. The efficient cause is the outside force or agent directly producing the result. And the final cause is the reason or purpose the end result serves. Aristotle's explanation of the final cause used the example of animal teeth. One cannot explain the growth of teeth by focusing only on their material construction. The purpose of those teeth and their value to the animal is, in truth, a more important causal factor than the process by which it is assembled. Reductionism is focused on Aristotle's conception of efficient cause, assuming the outside force is entirely sufficient to understand the causal relationships. In the process, it has discarded any concept of final cause, the purpose or function being satisfied. 
So how does one explain the purpose of a random walk or the trajectory of cosmic evolution that is fine-tuned to this particular universe or the emergent properties of dynamic systems or the trajectory of a human life without reference to the ends or final purpose that is demonstrated. To make sense of this crazy, wonderful world, one has to make a choice. What is the purpose of creation and what is its value to us? Why am I meant to be? Section 7. Choose wisely. We have to make a choice. About this, we have no choice. This conundrum is one variant of a critical peculiarity of the reality that we all experience. In section six, we explored the confusion about randomness and purpose in the universe and in our lives. We also followed in uh, section four, the reductionist path in search of a theory of everything, peeling back the layers from the whole to nothing. Why are these things so difficult? Why is everything so confused? The conscious ability to reflect and the resulting capacity for self-reflection is a particularly important feature of the world we live in. In section two, we discussed the incompleteness theorems of Kurt Gödel that proved that our logic, if consistent, will always be incomplete. The proof of those theorems relies on a particular category of logical statements, statements that refer to themselves. The sentence, quote, this statement contains five words, is an example. It is perfectly sensible and it is true. Quote, this statement is written in cursive, is also sensible, however, it's false. What happens when you consider the simple sentence the statement is false. If true, the statement contradicts itself. If false, it curls back and bites its own tail. This curious linguistic sample is known as the liar's paradox. It has created significant difficulties in the foundations of mathematics, including both logic and set theory. Gödel's proof confirms that being consistent means the truth will always be incomplete. Self-referential logical systems simply cannot avoid this paradox. Humans are self-referential systems. We are conscious, aware, attentive, reflective, and contemplative, and we make plans, intentions, and choices for ourselves. Following Gödel, it would seem that humans, in seeking to be rational and logically consistent, would inevitably find that the truth is incomplete. The universe is also a self-referential system. We are a product of the universe, and we are observing it. In quantum physics, the waveform does not collapse, e.g. things don't happen, unless the event is observed. Perhaps the paradoxes we find in relativity, quantum physics, causation, and purpose are the Gödelian consequence of the self-referential nature of reality, in which case the universe is not entirely accessible to empirical science. Some truths will always be beyond reach. Infinity, for example, will always be beyond reach. Yet mathematicians and physicists rely on the concept of infinity all the time. Numbers, for example, are an infinite set. 
and calculus is a valuable technique based on infinitesimals. But no mathematician or computer will ever count to infinity, and no physicist will ever observe it. There's an interesting thought experiment that reveals some of the strange properties of infinity. Imagine a hundred monkeys typing, presumably randomly, on a hundred typewriters for a limitless period of time. Eventually, hidden somewhere in the seemingly endless streams of nonsense, they would produce all the works of Shakespeare. So, what is the difference between an endless stream of nonsense produced by typing monkeys and the very meaningful works of Shakespeare? The difference can only be observed by a reflecting intelligence. Consider, then, the stream of experiences that make up our lives. Many of those experiences may seem to be random. Some believe they are all random. But clearly, there are events in human lives that are transformational. Surviving a plane crash, falling in love, choosing or falling into a career, getting or surviving a disease, experiencing a transcendent presence. In light of who we each turn out to be, such experiences are no accident. As some will say, looking back, this was meant to be. While no one can prove such a claim, neither can anyone ever disprove it. Meaning does not arise from a collection of life experiences, but from the observations of a reflecting intelligence that recognizes the threads and patterns that are meaningful. Reflection is necessarily two-way. There's the observer and the observed. In this sense, reflection is a reciprocal relationship. Reciprocity implies that you have, if you have the one, then you must have the other. Infinity, the idea of endlessness, that is always beyond reach, also has a reciprocal, a concept of nothingness. Zero, the null set, may seem to be so much simpler than infinity, and yet neither can be concretely conceived. The very act of conceiving nothing gives its substance, effectively denying its true nature as nothing. Similarly, the act of conceiving infinity is fruitless since the very thought seeks to bound what is unbounded. In an important sense, zero and infinity are intimately intertwined, yet eternally distinct. Consider the simple formula x equals 1 over y. If we let y get bigger and bigger, the value of x gets smaller and smaller. We can make y arbitrarily large and the value of x arbitrarily small. So we say the mathematical limit of x as y approaches infinity is zero. Zero inf and infinity in that sense are reciprocal. In quantum physics, every quantum event manifests a relationship between the observer and that which is observed. The relationship is reciprocal. Each side requires the other. The complementarity principle holds that quantum states manifest as both waves and particles. The two are mutually exclusive but inextricably linked. Even Newton's law of third motion draws on the concept of reciprocity. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. From a cosmic viewpoint, these reciprocal relationships permeate the universe. At the limits of thought, everything is connected to everything else in a continuous chain of reciprocity. Humans are also reciprocal. 
We are individuals, yet we are inextricably and reciprocally connected to other humans through genetic and evolutionary heritage, as well as through language and culture. We are also eminently social creatures, defining ourselves and the meaning of our lives through our relationships. We care and are cared for. We love and are loved. These reciprocal connections weave through time and space to every human now alive and every human that ever lived. In the broadest sense, the threads connect us to all living things and ultimately to all times and places. So what do we make of our reciprocal relationship to the, to the totality of all that is, to all of experience? Can there ever be a theory that captures this totality, a truly all-encompassing TOE? From an empirical perspective, the answer is no. Our logical foundation is inadequate. Our experimental evidence is inconclusive. Our theoretical framework is riddled with incompatibilities. These difficulties all flow from the self-referential nature of consciousness, life, and the universe. Of course, this does not stop the theoretical physicists in their quest to avoid these difficulties from postulating the model of an infinite multiverse. This is a theory in which everything that is possible exists somewhere. Each time a choice is being made by a quantum particle or a human agent, two alternative universes are created one for each possibility. While we live in the world where the physical fine-tuning constants are very specific values, there are infinitely many other worlds where those constants assume all possible different values. Any possible configurations of reality that are mathematically possible are physically manifested in some reality far distant as it may be from ours. In this model, we no longer need be concerned with how choices actually change the world. Worlds are there for all possible choices. Nor do we need to distinguish between randomness and purpose. Any and all outcomes exist in one place or another, so there's no need to make a distinction. In such a model, it can truly be said that everything is everything. Sadly, when everything is everything, then nothing means anything. There is a relatively much simpler, some would say simplistic model, that works much better in addressing the theoretical difficulties, one that provides a useful, flexible framework for further inquiry. That model is the premise that finite reality is the creation of an infinite and eternal conscious intelligence, God. This creation includes a spiritual, non-physical realm, as well as the physical universe. The entirety of this creation is guided by conscious intention, manifested in the process of emergent evolution, the driving force of which is love, reciprocal attraction, and mutual cooperation. The purpose of this creation is, ultimately, to facilitate communion, a conscious reciprocal sharing of joy, gratitude, and mutual loving-kindness. This seems like the wiser choice. Section 8, Conclusion, Integrating Knowledge and Faith. Emanuel Swedenborg, who lived from 1688 to uh, 1772, reported in one of his spiritual experiences that he saw a magnificent temple 
representing the new church in the process of descending from heaven to earth. Over the gate of the temple, the words Nunc Licet, now aloud, appeared. Swedenborg explains that the words signify that now it is permitted to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith. Swedenborg was a scientist before he was a religious revelator in a period of tremendous change as the Industrial Revolution was just beginning. He approached his religious experiences with a scientist's mind, writing detailed notes and making innumerable cross-references in an effort to be comprehensive and consistent. In this, he was largely successful, although his writing is sometimes tedious and not always comprehensible. As to the veracity of his claims and the specificity of his descriptions, I place these questions in a special category as neither verifiable nor disprovable. God is infinite, and our attempts as finite human beings to articulate our relationship with the infinite is going to reflect our human limitations. Swedenborg was brilliant, a trained scientist, and a thoroughly grounded scholar, but he was still a man of his times, grappling with the ineffability of God and heaven. Nunc licet implies that spiritual faith is a matter for rational consideration and that we can continue to improve our understanding of spiritual truth. This idea may be heretical to many religious institutions. Nevertheless, there are great thinkers in all religious and philosophical traditions that have contributed to an extensive body of writings offer us rational insights into matters of faith. Indeed, all religions have something to offer in return for patient and open-minded inquiry into their core spiritual principles. Paradoxically, one could spend many lifetimes exploring all of the spiritual writings now so easily accessible, and yet one might still be no closer to finding faith. This is because faith is not simply a rational process of evaluating ideas. Faith also requires that an idea be affirmed with conviction. This conviction requires an act of the will. It's a matter of the heart. And as Bonnie Raitt declares in the song, I can't make you love me, quote, you can't make your heart feel something it won't. The rational mind cannot tell the heart what to feel. What motivates our hearts is love. Faith, then, is the result of a process by which one falls in love, not with a person, but with affections, feelings, and ideas that one is exposed to and has the opportunity to explore. Love directs our faith. In turn, faith guides our reason. If we have faith in the randomness of creation, we will see randomness. If we have faith in the purpose of creation, we will see purpose. If we're not sure what to believe, then we benefit by suspending disbelief and exploring the liminal spaces, the gaps in our experiences and our understanding. Seek the source of meaning in your life and you may find a love that guides and binds. You may find faith. My experience of a loving marriage to Wenda has been such a source of insight and meaning for me, but there are others. The innocent and gloriously spontaneous affection of a new baby. Peak experiences of joy, awe, and humility in nature. 
meditation on sacred texts, or the teaching of sages, or the inner life of the mind and heart. These can all be sources of inspiration that can help us suspend our rational doubts and open up to convictions of faith from our hearts. Paradoxically, suspending doubts requires putting aside the rational self. Faith, when it comes, is not from the self, but is ultimately a gift. I have faith that an infinite God created and sustains the natural world and all of its many and varied wonders. That creation involved a separation of the finite from the infinite, a distinction between nothingness and infinity. This primal creative act brought into being the natural world and the conscious human beings that study it using the tools of math and science. The empirical knowledge we have collected is true but incomplete. It cannot explain the world's origins, its purpose, or its meaning. Swedenborg says that the fundamental purpose of the universe is the creation of a heaven of angels from the human race, and that the goal of heaven is perfection to eternity in loving, peaceful communion with God. This reciprocal communion requires that we be born into the natural world with the gift of our soul and the free will to make our own choices. Like the faith and the love that grounds it, communion cannot be forced. It must be freely given. It is in the choosing that we make our relationship with God reciprocal. We choose what voices to listen to, what words to read, and what experiences to pay attention to. We can choose whether to be open to new ideas, including spiritual ideas, or to reject them. We can choose to love only ourselves and our material life, or to turn our love toward other people, to all of creation, and ultimately to God. Those choices shape the trajectory of our lives, both in this world and for eternity. Section 9, Epilogue. What do you see? I've done a fair amount of hiking over the years, and I always like to get to the top of a mountain and take in the view. I've wondered what it is about those views that are so compelling and awe-inspiring. The best explanation I can come up with is that mountain views, and sometimes ocean or lake views, bring us into a visual field that is more finely grained than the human eye and brain are able to perceive we are confronted with an experience of infinity, incomprehensibly vast and beautiful. Whenever my wife and I reach a mountain viewpoint, we enjoy the vista and then offer a prayer of gratitude to the infinite God that created it and a petition for peace and blessings to all who are in need. Thanks for listening to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, George Gantz. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts, and please visit spiralinquiry.org to explore the intersection of science, faith, and philosophy, and to contribute your own ideas to the conversation.